Hello and welcome to BioEats World. I'm Lauren Richardson, scientist and former senior editor of PLOS Biology. On this podcast, we explore the growing intersection of biology and technology. And at the heart of this intersection is the development of new methods. There is still so much of biology and in particular disease that we don't understand, in part because we've never had a way to study it rigorously before. And that's where tech comes in. We've talked in previous episodes about the revolutions in genomics that have fueled tons of new insights and therapies. And today, we're talking about a new method that aims to rival genomics as a way to characterize and understand biology at scale. I'm joined by Madison Maselli, CEO and co-founder of DeepCell, and A16Z general partner Vijay Pandey, whose research at Stanford focused on the development of novel computational methods for simulating biology. We discuss this new technology, which combines artificial intelligence, or AI, with assessments of cell morphology, which is essentially what the cell looks like. We cover the untapped potential of studying cells and their shape, how Madison and her colleagues at DeepCell are building an AI with seemingly limitless applications, and where this technology is going to take us. What is the sort of most reductionist view of biology that gets interesting? What is the so-called atomic unit? And when we're thinking about disease, it's clear that if you had to have an individual person, a whole organism to represent disease, we'd be in real trouble. And now the question is, is it going to be about organ systems? Is it about organs? Is it about tissue? Is it about cells? Is it about parts of cells? And people have looked at many different levels. And actually, much of drug design in the early days was at a tissue level. And for a while, structural biology has pushed people to proteins. But proteins really don't recapitulate disease. They're just a part of a cell. And I think it's an interesting middle ground to choose cells. It's a hell of a lot more complex than a protein would be, or even like a pathway, but doesn't have the complexity of tissue. And in some ways, it's not perfect sort of recapitulation of disease phenotype, but I think it's sufficiently predictive of that. Yeah. When you think about metastatic cancer, for instance, you're really talking about a few single cells making it into bloodstream, and then going and initiating a whole new tissue somewhere else in the body. So you can imagine like how much the cell itself has a role in what happens externally. And I think that's where the value of the cell comes into the picture. And when you even look at like DNA analysis, RNA analysis, there's a lot of focus on single cell analysis because of the heterogeneity of the tissues. I think the field has realized that you need to have technologies to really get to the bottom of some of the interplays between the cells within a tissue. So science has always been trying to figure out, you know, what is the best way to understand, you know, what's happening at the human level, what's happening in disease. And for a really long time, you know, we were only able to look at the whole body. Then there's like the advent of molecular biology. We really focused on what's happening at the protein level with genomics. We're really looking at the DNA. And now we're looking at the cell level and thinking about that as kind of a whole unit as opposed to further breaking it down into individual individual parts. Exactly. So we have all these technologies, you know, we've mentioned a few of them. You can look at all the genes in the cell, or you can look at all the RNA that's in the cell, all the proteins that are in the cell. So what are those technologies missing about the cell? 
there was this understanding in the past that you could imagine that things are super simple, that one gene encodes for, let's say, color of the hair, or one gene could encode for susceptibility to a specific cancer. But then people realize that things are more complicated than that. So then now you start adding things into this mix and adding tools into your toolbox. And I think one thing that's really missing, and it's very remarkable that it's missing because it plays such a big role in diagnostics to date, is the way that the cells look. And I think adding that information in could really enhance our understanding of the systems and provide a link between the molecular properties of the cells and the functional properties of the cells. It's like anything in science. Science isn't just about the science. It's about the human history of how we came about things. And the whole advent of Structural biology and genomics was really these foundational elements that now allows us to start putting these things together. And once you start putting these things together, gene pathways and so on, you start to get to the cell as sort of a natural sort of plateau point for where to start playing around. Uh, it's like we went down to like the fundamental building blocks, and now we can use those building blocks to create a higher level understanding of what's happening. What are some of the features of cell shape, cell morphology? Like, how do they make a good proxy for what's happening in the cell? So there's a lot, right? And that's one of the biggest challenges. So you can see things about the size of the cell, of course, the relationship between the size of the nucleus and the cell, the way that the nucleus is positioned inside the cell, the way that this cytoplasm looks. And there is a condensation of the chromatin, which has implications in how the gene translation happens and exactly how those features relate to then what happens molecularly on the cell level. I don't know that it's a direct one-to-one relationship, but those features have been used to identify cells that are abnormal or unusual, and then diagnose diseases or conditions based on that. Yeah. You know, I remember from my time in the lab, like coming in and pulling my cells out of the incubator and and looking at them under the microscope. And I would be able to say like, this plate of cells is dead. Or these (laughs) ones, you know, (laughs) that was not an unrare occurrence. Or like these look sick, but I wouldn't necessarily be able to connect that to anything other than like, oh, now I'm in trouble. Now I need to go to the minus 80 and pull out new cells and replate them. So you've got a dysfunctional cell. You know, you can see it, it looks abnormal. How do you connect that to a disease state? Right. So sometimes it's dysfunction, but it's even broader than that. A lot of times within basic research, people have relied on cell morphology to detect whether the cells are dividing or whether they're differentiating or otherwise transitioning. They have been able to look at elongation of cells during development. And they have been able to link also morphology to function, for example, with neuron cells and classify neuron cells based on the way that they look. In drug discovery, there is a long history of using cell morphology to do drug screening by just looking at how a monolayer of the cells would look like upon treatment to a certain drug. But it's beyond looking unusual. Like we have projects in our labs where we are trying to subtype immune cells based on their looks. And that's what happens in complete blood counts, for instance. Like these are the cells that are normal, natural, and happy, and they still have drastic morphological differences between one another. So traditionally, you put that as a description, right? The way that we look at cell morphology is very qualitative and descriptive. Like if you look at a pathologist assessment of a cell or a tissue, you would encounter things like glassy consistency, foamy chromatin, salt and pepper chromatin, signet ring-like morphology, eccentric nucleus, things like that. But to some level, that's the limiting factor. Like the human language 
it's also limiting our ability to understand cell morphology. So connecting that to the disease so far has been through comparing images to each other. See, does this cell look like that cell? Can I classify this cell in my brain as that one? So a lot of it is comparative analysis of images in our own brain, very subjectively, very manually, to then link that to something that was observed previously. So that's how traditionally it's been done. And that's why we think that the field needs a revolution. This has been done in a very like manual, low-tech sort of way. And so now with, you know, the advent of all these technologies, we can start to do this in a, you know, more structured way. So let's dive into how you think about decoding that morphology. One of the most fundamental challenges is how do you quantify this? How do you go from something like a hairy cell leukemia to a number? or a few numbers. So you really need to think like outside of life sciences problems that are similar to this and what approaches have solved those problems. Like ImageNet trying to identify different objects. And I'm already talking about machine learning. So it's obvious that that's the way that we are thinking about it. But then we see like how deep learning completely changed the view of how accurate you can get. If you think about both how humans learn and about how deep learning works, it really is about dimensionality reduction. It's about taking something very complicated and coming up with a much simpler representation. And, you know, the question is not that we have to do dimensionality reduction because there's no way to understand these things in its full complexity. The question is, what is the nature of our dimensionality reduction? And a human-driven or just empirical dimensionality reduction will generally be pretty poor compared to what you could do by much more systematic methods, especially if you had a ton of data. And so now if we can understand sort of the language of this lower dimensional space, now we can start to really make major advances and really do not what our gut feeling tells us, but really do what the data tells us. I'm thinking again of your description of like what a pathology readout sounds like, you know, it's like cuboid shapes and this looks like the cell is hairy. So that's an example of dimensionality reduction, but that is based on our interpretation of those images and familiar objects that we know of. You know, what you're talking about doing with AI is taking away all that human interpretation, saying like, you know, this is cuboid because I know what a cube is. It's going back to like an analysis that doesn't rely on saying that it looks like something else. Yeah, it's not biased by human foibles. Mm -hmm. How much of image analysis from traditional tech can be ported over to this problem and how much has to be engineered specifically because this is biology and it's just inherently its own beast? I think the general concepts of what makes for a good AI or machine learning problem and how to solve those problems is completely transferable. Now, there are considerations that you need to take into account, for instance, variability or cleanness of data, or having access to data that's representative of what's in the space that you're interested in. And that includes the sample prep. Again, one of the big challenges of why current cell morphological analysis is very difficult to turn into a big data problem and be integrated with other omics is because there is no standard sample prep. If you look at tissue slides, for instance, they have been prepped in different ways. The angle at which the cells locate end up in the processed tissue has a lot of implications on what comes up out of the other end of the analysis, right? And there is no standard way to generate or collect that data. So because of that reason, we had to generate a lot of our data. So we are not just about AI, but about also creating that clean data that would support building an AI model. Another aspect that's really cool, and it has implications in biology as well as other AI type problems, 
in this case, is having access to ground truth, or in our case, what we like to call gold truth. So what we do is we source based on morphological assessment, and then we kind of integrate that with molecular and functional assessment of those same cells to bring that gold truth or ground truth back into the picture. When you compare and contrast that with something like digital pathology, which is also trying to revolutionize pathology, your ground truth there is the consensus of a few pathologists. So your accuracy is really capped at what a little bit of increased accuracy is when you get consensus from multiple pathologists against one, and you're trying to automate and make this process faster, but you're still not resolving the fundamental issues of building a good AI problem, which has a gold truth or ground truth at its core. When you're designing an AI to help you parse that huge array of different connections between cell morphology and function, do you have to basically create a new AI for each of these different applications and for each of these different cell populations? Or is there a way to make kind of like a more flexible or general AI that's able to do all these different tasks? That's actually one of the problems that we are trying to solve, right? Is there a universal model that you can at least do a first screening with and then maybe train more application-focused models from there? And the answer is to some extent, yes. So we have put this into practice. We have looked at models that have not been trained, for instance, on any of the subtypes of immune cells. And we've still seen the clustering or unsupervised approaches perform on the cells that had never been seen by the model. And the cells that we're talking about are morphologically actually very similar to each other. And it's even difficult for the human eye to identify them sometimes. So there is hope for such an overarching or universal model once the data sets are big enough and diverse enough. But I think in order to get more accuracy for a specific application, for instance, circulating tumor cell isolation, where you need your false positive rates to be around 10 to negative 5, 10 to negative 6, then you might need to design more focused application-specific models on top of that. Actually, it's very recent that we think a lot about supervised learning when we think about AI and classification, but there's this new understanding that unsupervised approaches can, Mm -hmm. in fact, help with uh, designing better classifiers on top of them. So investing in creating this universal model that will mainly be used for unsupervised learning can even enhance those application-specific models that will be trained on top of it. What's the importance of having an AI learn through an unsupervised versus a supervised manner? There's a spectrum of methods that are useful in machine learning, and two bookends are supervised and unsupervised methods. And so supervised methods are like you have a picture of a cat and the label cat. Unsupervised methods are where you don't have that label. One of the most simple versions of unsupervised learning is clustering. And actually, you know, you see kids doing this. Kids look at their world and they can see a cat and a dog are more similar to each other than like a cat and a rock. And you can start to really organize your world just by looking at the similarities between things and clustering things together. And you can build a hierarchy of clustering the clustering and so on. A lot of things can be done without labels. And obviously, there's things in between for semi-supervised methods where you have a few labels where you understand the landscape and then you sort of have a few data points to tell you what this is. Another example is like if you just had the GPS locations of people in the country without knowing the map, 
well, you have actually a pretty good idea of where all the highways were, where the main cities are. And then suddenly, if someone gave you maybe even 0.1% of labels of what the city name is, suddenly you identify New York, Seattle, San Francisco immediately. You'd even understand the boundaries. You understand all of this just from a few data points in that semi-supervised method. With the supervised learning, you have a very specific question to ask. Is this a cancer cell or not? Is this a modified immune cell or not? Is this a T cell or not? And because you know what you're asking for, you go and design models that are specifically trained to answer that specific question. For unsupervised, one of the most interesting applications that we are using it for today is to understand tissue heterogeneity. We talked about the fact that the resolution at the single cell is important in understanding what's the interplay between the cells of a certain tissue. And what you can do with unsupervised learning is to image a whole bunch of cells from a certain tissue and then see how it maps out. And clusters form that are morphologically meaningful. And now what's super interesting to us is because of our ability to sort those cells, to see whether these morphologically meaningful clusters mean anything useful in understanding the function of the cells. And that is a window through a whole new bunch of learnings in the field and trying to take action on morphology data. So unsupervised learning is almost like a tool for discovery. It's letting the AI tell you what's important as opposed to you telling the AI what's important. Right. So you've mentioned cell sorting a few times. And so what's the importance of sorting in connection with understanding cell morphology? So cell sorting is physically separating and sorting cells in a way that you can then access those cells to do whatever you want to do with them. So we do molecular analysis on those cells. We grow the cells out and do functional analysis on those cells. And through sorting the cells, we can bring the information that is important for annotating them. So when you think about the way that we set up this AI model is that we have a bunch of images of the cells, right? And we need to label them. We need to tell the AI this is a cat or is a dog or is a brick or whatever, right? In order for it to learn. So how do we provide those annotations? You can rely on the human subjective view of the cells. You can think about having access to pure cells that you know exactly what they are and giving that as an annotation. Or you can have sorting as a way to provide clean annotations so that you can train powerful models. That's one application of cell sorting for us. The second one is when our users are actually interested in the sorted cells. For example, in liquid biopsy, you're interested to separate out this malignant cell that is at a rate of like one in a million and figure out what's the mutation profile of that malignant cell. If you were to process the whole blood, you wouldn't get enough information to even begin to figure that out. So you're interested in a pure population of a cell of interest to do molecular analysis, to do functional analysis, and our sorting technology can help with that. I think that's really illustrative in that if you think about blood cells, most people can envision the difference between a red blood cell and a white blood cell. And so by analyzing all the images of the cells, identifying these super rare cancer cells, and then saying like, okay, there's cancer in this blood, that's very helpful. But what is extra helpful is if you can then take that super rare cell separate it from all the other cells and analyze that one cell. And then that gives you so much more information on, you know, what kind of disease you're dealing with. Yeah. And what's even cooler than that is if you could grow that one cell out and test a few therapeutic ideas that you have. Yeah. You can test if it's resistant to anything, if it's sensitive to anything in particular. Yeah. That's a really powerful approach. So, you know, one thing that comes up a lot when you're talking about AI is interpretability, you know, knowing what the 
AI is identifying and how it's characterizing things. So, you know, when you're thinking about developing these technologies, you know, with clinical purpose in mind, how important is it to know what features the AI is identifying versus like just knowing that it can do it robustly? So it's sometimes really difficult to know what AI is identifying. And there are some learnings, but it's very difficult to come up with features that are interpretable through human language and communicate that. I think eventually what you want to really rely on is to have the correct clinical study set up. And this is what's happening right now with other approaches too, right? With pathology, you are designing your SOPs, you are giving a recipe to identify cells, and then you are assessing that based on the sensitivity and specificity of that approach. So the ultimate test is going to be that sensitivity and specificity assessment of what you are defining or what your model is defining as a cancer cell or an abnormal cell and what is in fact, the clinical assessment of the patient. And then there's been lots of different work on interpretability, and I think it's a very fast-moving field. And I think there are a lot of different examples of how deep learning has been interpretable. It's not an easy thing to do, but I think the nice thing about images is at least the hope is that the nature of that latent space, that low-dimensional space, is easier to understand. In the end, I think the interpretation aspect will be important in that one, I think as humans, as clinicians, as researchers, we're going to want to be able to have some understanding ourselves. And then the other aspect of it is that by sort of forcing the interpretability, it's a form of regularization. It's a form of avoiding overfitting by making sure that it's general enough that we can understand it. And what I suspect will emerge in time is that there'll be simple models that machine learning spits out that are very interpretable, but maybe much worse predictive power. And then we can, I think, have some more confidence in the more complex models if we can understand the simple ones. And actually, ironically, this is the way a lot of science works. You think about physics, you have very simple wrong models of the atom that you're taught from like elementary school through graduate school in physics, and you just gradually start removing the mistakes. So, you know, um, the Bohr model is taught and it's interpretable, but it's very wrong, not quantitatively predictive. And I think that is what we're going to see. And I think that's going to be the thing that's probably also most satisfying for us as scientists. With that said, I think the long-term aspect of it is that there may be certain things that are just too complicated, too nuanced for us to understand. And we have to come to peace with that too. It's going to be a tough one. But yeah, I, I like thinking about it in terms of like the pathology report and being able to hit those key like sensitivity and specificity requirements, which is like false positive, false negative rate. If you can develop a test that gets those measures right, then understanding exactly how it does it is not necessarily as important. So what does that mean for the readout of a cell morphology assay? I'm familiar with genomics. You'll get a list of genes or mutations or whatever you're sequencing. When your assay is shape, how do you relay information on that back to the researcher or back to the clinician? They may seem that different, but they're really not different at all. In each case, you know, there's the raw data, there's the genomic sequence, there's the picture, and then there's the meaning of the data. And that's the land of bioinformatics. And so either way, the raw data is very not interesting. Most people don't spend their time looking at AGCs and Ts. They will look at the informatic results. It's kind of like using gene ontology to understand kind of what kind of genes you're looking at. Yeah, and presumably there'll be an ontology here too. Yeah, you're looking at association of a gene to a disease or, or similarity between the way that the cell behaves to a different cell that has the same gene mutation, for instance. So a lot of it is through correlative analysis associations. And that's how I think the 
communication of morphology will also end up. Well, it's kind of, again, like genomic sequences, knowing the canonical sequence isn't as interesting as a lot of the rare mutants. Understanding sort of typical morphology may not be as interesting as a lot of the rare variants. And to go into the tail of this distribution, you need a lot of data. And Maddie, I'm curious, how does that work? And do you just keep on finding new things? Is there eventually a spot where you've sort of found everything? It seems like we have hit a treasure trove and we keep finding things at this point, at least. When you think about the resolution of the data and how much data there is, is there a cap? And can you quantify that cap? Sometimes you can think about the number of pixels that you have available per cell, but that's not really the end of the story, right? There is the relationship between those pixels that become a next layer of understanding what's going on and can add more information. And, you know, the fact that we have access to this large amount of clean data, single cell data with single cell level annotations brings something unique about the way that we are addressing this problem. And that's one of the key aspects of what makes for a good AI problem is that your unit of data is plentiful. And our unit of data are cells, and you have billions of those, and you're trying to make micro decisions on individual cells and then turn that into a sample level decision, which makes it a really interesting problem, very similar to problems outside life sciences that have shown to enhance with more data. So how do you see cell morphology integrating and playing a role in you know, the clinical and diagnostic space in the future? So the way that I think about this space is that there are really three categories of applications and areas that we find morphology being relevant to. One area is very obvious. These are applications where morphology is already known and already being used as the analyte to identify cells, for instance, in pathology. The second category is where there are approaches that are currently working for a specific use case of interest, but morphology could serve as an alternative with higher sensitivity, specificity, or provide unperturbed cells compared to what is currently standard. For instance, screen for variants of unknown significance. So in one of the collaborations that we're supporting, uh, we are looking at mitochondrial disorders, but the only alternative approach that we can do it with is seahorse assay, which is laborious, non-scalable, and screening with morphology could be an amazing, cheap, and fast approach to really do that at scale. A third category is areas where everybody's looking for markers, looking for new insights, looking for ways to identify cells or unusual patterns in cells with genomics, proteomics, transcriptomics, and morphology could just be another tool in the toolbox. Like for instance, identifying unusual patterns in immune cells of severe COVID patients. So there's a lot of different implications of the technology. And this has been very challenging for us to decide what collaborations to take on and what applications to support and not because the space is so vast and all these applications sound super cool. So as a founder building a company around this new technology, there's also a lot of different business models you could have chosen. You could be running everyone's samples for them and providing reports. You could you know, be creating a device with a software package that you then sell to labs or to sell to pathologists, or you could be developing diagnostics yourself. Like when you're dealing with so many different business models and so many applications, how did you think about finding what fit right for you and your company? So what we are trying to do is to provide a platform and an ecosystem in the context of enabling people to develop their own apps, enabling people who are perhaps not 
data or AI savvy to use our technology and to use our platform to go and figure out whether morphology is a signal for their specific use case. Today, people know how to evaluate whether a gene or a protein is correlated or relevant to a disease process or to their application of interest. They don't know how to do that in morphology. What we want to provide is a way for them to test their hypotheses on whether cell morphology is relevant to their applications easily. Everything that we're creating, we want to make sure that we are positioned the best to generate this vast amount of data across as many centers as possible so that we can provide that universal language that you can start learning from. That That's the approach that's going to get us to those specific applications that require super high accuracies, even actually faster than if we had taken on those specific applications as the first problem to solve. It's like you almost have to solve like a lot of problems before you can solve one problem. I mean, it's a better approach. You're positioned better to solve a lot of problems that require a higher bar by addressing a bigger space initially. There's just so much to learn to handle cell morphology in predictive ways. And as a service, the AI does some things that are really interesting. One thing is to do superhuman things, to be able to make someone that can sort of label them with accuracy greater than any particular individual because of the wisdom of the crowds aspect of AI learning. But the other part that actually I think shouldn't be underestimated is really just the scale. Like the fact you can do this on millions and billions of cells in principle. And so that AI scaling actually will, I think, open doors to new biological insights for things that we just never got to see. Madison, you come from an academic background, you know, PhD, postdoc. So what's the benefit of building this new language of cell morphology in a startup as opposed to within an academic institution or, you know, within your own lab or something like that? Possibility. <laughs> you need scale, right? The types of problems that we are solving, there are like 20 engineers that are trying to solve these problems. And still we're like, oh, we have 10 more problems that we need to solve, right? So the number of areas that we need to cover to address some of the issues to build this universal model and the universal data set is not simple. And I think the pace in the industry is much faster than academia. Access to resources is much better. You can be more intentional about what you want to do rather than being kind of limited to what you initially thought and put on a grant proposal. Access to capital is better and therefore solving problems that require a lot of multidisciplinary efforts and fast pace and a lot of engineering support is usually better done in a company than in academia. Very well said. I felt the pain in academia as well. <laughs> comes from pain. <laughs> so when you think about the evolution of the field of biology, we've gone from qualitative to semi-quantitative to quantitative and then to scaled approaches, which have provided that big data set that is a bedrock of innovation and learning. And the way we think about cell morphology is that we want it to go through the same transition to scale so that we can generate a lot of new knowledge and a lot of new learnings by combining that with other omics data that are starting to resolve a lot of questions about how biological processes work. So we want to be to the cell what next generation sequence was to the genome by providing this scaled, quantitative, single cell resolution, actionable data in order to take it to the next level. 
There's just so much of disease cell morphology we don't understand right now. And I think we're at an age where everything feels like it's accelerating in biology and it's accelerating from scale. And so now hitting this enormous scale, you know, we're talking about billions now, we get way past Carl Sagan into trillions and so on. Maybe in time when you start to sort of take another dimension into population scale and you have not just rare events for you, but rare events amongst the population and beyond, I think is a future that really doesn't feel that far away. Madison, Vijay, thank you so much for joining me on BioEats World today. I don't think I'll ever look at a cell exactly the same way again. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And that's it for BioEats World this week. BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson, with the help of the A16Z bio team, Justin Golden, and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you've got questions about this episode or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And for more on how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.